Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the CSWR. My name is Charles Stang, and I'd like to thank you all for coming out this evening for this lecture. And as always, I'd like to thank the center staff for helping make this event possible. So let me begin by reminding you to please silence your phone. I'm going to do that myself so that I don't become the host who embarrasses himself. Okay. I have the distinct honor and pleasure of welcoming Professor Branka Arsic this evening for a lecture entitled All One Stuff, Emerson's Materialism. Professor Arsic's lecture is meant to accompany a seminar I'm teaching this semester together with my colleague Dan McCannon on the topic of transcendentalism and nature. She just joined our seminar this afternoon and the students have been preparing for her visit the last two months by reading extensively in Emerson and Thoreau, of course, but also in her own two most uh, relevant books, uh, books on those very figures, about which I'll say uh, more in just a moment. Her lecture this evening is also part of the Center's ongoing series entitled Matter and Spirit, Ecology and the Non-Human Turn, a series that has hosted such figures as the anthropologists Eduardo Cohn, and our, uh, uh, Ana Mariela Bachagalupo this semester, Eduardo Cohn last year, the writer and scientist Robin Wall Kimmerer just two weeks ago, and next week the cultural ecologist and self-described geophilosopher David Abram. Um, so please do join us here at the center next week for his lecture that will be on Tuesday evening, and it's entitled The Commonwealth of Breath, Climate and Consciousness in a More Than Human World. And finally, I'd like to acknowledge and thank our CSWR research fellow, Mary Balkan, whose reading group on animism has been of such enormous help in steering this series. Banka Arsic is the Charles and Lynn Zhang, am I saying that right, Zhang? I think so. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> oh, thank you. Charles and Lin Zhang, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. She specializes in literatures of the 19th century, I'm sorry, 19th century Americas and their scientific, philosophical, and religious contexts. She's the author most recently of Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau, which was awarded the MLA James Russell Lowell Prize for the best book of 2016. Our seminar has read portions of this book along with her 2010 book, On Leaving, a reading in Emerson. She's also published extensively on Herman Melville and is in the midst of a new book entitled Ambient Life, Melville, Materialism, and the Ethereal Enlightenment, which will focus on images of the elemental, vegetal, and animal that transverse Melville's work as a means of investigating how he imagined the capacity of matter to move and transform. That book will suit this series just as well. So we'll have you back, um, if you're willing. So now having listed some of Professor Arsich's many books, let me try to say something briefly about their significance. I cannot pretend to be entirely au courant with the scholarship on Emerson and Thoreau. But I've had to begin um, to be conversant in order to prepare for the seminar that Dan and I have been teaching. 
But I'm confident, I'm confident to say um, that for me, there is no one writing today who is as careful, close, or creative a reader of Emerson and Thoreau as she is. She relishes in turning long-standing scholarly readings of these two figures on their heads. In her hands, for example, Emerson does not champion a stable, stoic self, a citadel of individualistic self-reliance, but rather an ethic of self as sojourner, always drawing circles around itself whose borders it will then cross, always leaving itself, an ethic of ecstatic onwardness. In her hands, Thoreau is best read literally, and his endless descriptions of material transformations, for example, of humans turning into animals and animals into plants and animals into other animals, are not so much allegories of the soul's interior metamorphosis, but rather signs of an earnest view that all matter is an ever-shifting field of vitality in which life and death are always coincident. So this evening's lecture promises to do much the same. She will, in her own words now, quote, contradict the long-standing reading of Emerson as invested in idealism and instead chart his obsession with matter both organic and inorganic, organized and unorganized. Along the way, she puts these two locals in conversation with contemporary philosophers, such as Harvard's own Stanley Cavell, with anthropologists such as Eduardo Cohn, whom I mentioned we hosted here just last year, and political theorists such as Jane Bennett, whose theory of vibrant matter resonates deeply with Arsich's reading of the Transcendental Archive. In sum, she succeeds in making Emerson and Thoreau, and Melville too, I'm sure, although I haven't read your work on Melville, present to us anew, contemporaries, disturbingly timely because of their untimeliness. And to close with Nietzsche's definition of untimeliness from his meditation of that name, quote, I do not know what meaning classical studies could have for our time if they were not untimely. That is to say, acting counter to our time and thereby acting on our time. And let us hope for the benefit of a time to come. So thank you for joining us. Please join me in welcoming Professor Branka Arsic. Well, thank you very much um, for everything, for inviting me here, um, hosting me, uh, for the opportunity uh, to talk to your wonderful students, uh, and to you, and Dan, and now to all of you. Um, it's extremely um, um, important to me symbolically um, because of the whole transcendentalist uh, uh, history um, that is related to Harvard, so it's a true honor to be here. Uh, so what, um, what I'm going to read uh, today is a... Um, is a chapter from a, another book I'm working on that's called the Oyster Metaphysics. Um, <clears throat> and it's looking at a cluster of um, antebellum uh, American um, authors um, and their treatment of um, matter and continuity and heterogeneity. 
So, um, readers of Emerson generally agree that his transcendentalism was a form of idealism. And in fact, to um, even be begin to discuss the nature of matter in his, in his thought by pointing to readings that claim it's merely ideal status would require summarizing the whole history of approaches to his thought. I didn't find um, any that would that would disagree with the diagnosis that that he wasn't idealist. I'm going to try to do that tonight. So, um, however, even if Emerson um, was throughout his life uh, indeed interested in and often appreciative of varieties of idealism, he was also always careful not to identify his own thinking with it. Uh, my argument will start from the um, the earliest um, philosophical um, statement of Emerson's, his first uh, book uh, called Nature from 1836. An entire chapter of that book um, is dedicated to idealism. Written as a sort of diagnosis of the spiritual situation of the times, it examines the bearings of contemporary philosophy, art and, si art and sciences, and outlines reasons for the preference the age, his age, gives to versions of ideal philosophy. It proceeds from a simple claim that despite idealism's often significant variations, it is always generated by a skepticism defined, and I quote, as a noble doubt whether nature outwardly exists or whether it is merely an appearance, end quote, rendering the material universe, a spectacle for an observer whose consciousness alone is, as Emerson puts it, stable and essential. According to the argument the chapter advances, philosophy, poetry, religion, ethics, and science at the end of the 18th at the beginning of the 19th century are all in agreement about the truth of the idealist answer to the challenge of skepticism. Emerson sums it up in his claim that nature does not enjoy a substantial existence without, but is only in the mind, end quote. Philosophy, contemporary to him, he thinks, is explicit about that. And I quote Emerson, intellectual science has been observed to beget invariably a doubt of the existence of matter. Turgot said, he that has never doubted the existence of matter may be assured he has no aptitude for metaphysical inquiries, end quote. <laughs> Similarly, poetry, while contemporary poetry does not explicitly ask either ontological or epistemological questions regarding matter, does matter exist, can we know it, in conforming his perception of things to his own thoughts um, that he then expresses, or as Emerson puts it, disposes them anew, the poet announces that he too practices idealism. Contemporary science also is shot through with idealism. And I quote, even in physics, the material is degraded before the spiritual. The astronomer, the geometer, rely on their irrefutable analysis and disdain the result of observation, end quote. And, less surprisingly, religion and ethics similarly ride on idealism. Again, Emerson 
Finally, religion and ethics have an analogous effect with all lower culture in degrading nature and suggesting its dependence on spirit." End quote. However, although Emerson so adequately and systematically diagnoses the century's mainstream idealist obsession, what is rarely discussed is the fact that he ends the chapter by removing himself from such an obsession on both ontological and ethical grounds. The end of the chapter insists on the wrongness of all idealism, of all trends that, as he puts it, tend to affect our convictions of the reality of the external world. For in doubting that what is embodied can be essential makes matter depend on spirit for life. Such a premise leads idealism to, and I quote, a certain hostility and indignation towards matter, as the Manichaean and Plotinus. They, that's not for you. Uh, they distrusted in themselves any looking back to these flashpots of Egypt. Plotinus was ashamed of his body. In short, they might all say of matter what Michelangelo said of external beauty. It is the frail and very weed in which God dresses the soul which he has called into time, end quote. So what Emerson finds fallacious about the premise of Platonic and Neoplatonic and Christian idealism that sees the body as a deathly density that captivates or imprisons the soul is not only of an ontological order. What bothers him is not only that idealism claims matter as something that isn't whereas it is, entailing the conclusion that all matter is merely the unspirited debris of life void of energy, which he calls very weed. What is unacceptable to him is, in fact, the ethical consequence of such a metaphysics of weariness. For in rendering our bodies jaded, turning them into unregenerative, exhausted weeds, it wants to slander everything that comes from them, such as sensations and affects, to treat all that as inconsequential for the real life of spirit. In so doing, idealism doesn't only denigrate as irrelevant earthly life, which is mostly spent in making and touching things, sensing the creatures of the world and being affected by them, it also produces the shame of the bodily, as it did in Plotinus, as if the body had deserted the realm, the realm of the divine. And it is that desire to neglect what is embodied and natural that is unethical, according to Emerson, because it fashions and appreciates a forgetting of what is truly life-giving. On Emerson's account, in dreaming of the purely spiritual and eternal, idealism acts ungratefully towards the earthly life, and that's his word, ungratefully, uh, towards the earthly life that is all that is given us in all its finite and creaturely simplicity or complexity. Unwilling to show such ingratitude, Emerson removes himself from that thinking. And I quote Emerson, there is something ungrateful in expanding too curiously the particulars of the general proposition that all cu culture tends to imbue us with idealism. I have no hostility to nature, but a child's love to it. I expand and live in the warm day like corn and melons, end quote. 
So at the end of the chapter on idealism, Emerson therefore feels closer to Korn than to Plotinus <laughs> and declares his philosophy untimely because unlike all education of the times that imbued with idealism tends to, as he puts it, establish man, he, again, this is his words, unfashionably only wishes to indicate the true position of nature in regard to man, end quote. When he says that idealism is concerned dominantly with establishing man rather than nature in regard to man or man's position within nature, Emerson suggests that idealism seeks to institute a hierarchical difference between the human and the natural that would elevate man over nature on the basis of his spirituality and by means of this elevation, consecrate him with rights of dominance. Thus, at the end of the chapter, idealism appears as inherently anthropocentric. And I quote Emerson, the advantage of the ideal theory is this, that it presents the world in precisely that view which is most desirable to the mind. Idealism sees the world in God. It beholds the whole circle of persons and things, of actions and events, of country and religion, not as painfully accumulated atom after atom, act after act, in an aged creeping past, but as one vast picture which God paints on the instant in eternity for the contemplation of the soul. Therefore, the soul holds itself off from a too trivial and microscopic study of the universal tablet." End quote. The following then, on the basis of this quote, the following then are the features of contemporary idealism as this passage catalogs them. One, Idealism adjusts the world to its own image of that world rather than adjusting itself to it. It presents it in the way most desirable to the mind. Two, the essence of the world is transcendent and supernatural, hence, he can say, idealism sees the world in God. Three, because true, real true reality is otherworldly, whatever is individuated is rendered trivial. The painful accumulation, atom by atom, act by act, of persons and creatures is not of significance. The particular things or acts, singular events, specificities of cultures or religions become but a temporal, false instantiation of the eternal essence that alone is of interest to contemplation. And four, consequently, since what is generated by atoms into discrete forms is rendered incidental, the soul distances itself, substituting the universal and abstracted, the vast picture, the universal tablet for the particular and concrete. Already in nature, Emerson will precisely situate his own philosophy in direct opposition to that idealism in the following four ways. <clears throat> First, Instead of adjusting the world to its own image of it, his philosophy will want to disperse with uh, our representations of it. Prospects, the last chapter of Nature, in which Emerson proleptically announces the task of any future philosophy, famously diagnoses that, as he put it, the ruin of the blank that we see when we look at nature is in our own eye. And quote, <clears throat> 
So to repair the ruin, Emerson's philosophy will work at disseminating our blindness to affecting earthly things in order precisely to have us come to look at the world with new eyes, end quote. For whilst the abstract question, that's also Emerson, occupies your intellect, nature occupies your intellect, nature brings it in the concrete to be solved by your hands, end quote. The truth then resides in what we touch and handle, in what we see adequately and hear receptively, requiring us to approach, in bodily, uh, to approach it bodily and perceptually. Such an approach will allow us to do away with fables, as he puts it, by preparing us to face the boldness of the fact, of the singular fact. Second, because the truth is located in the natural, the essence of the world will have to be, if there is so, something like that, will have to be sought and found here. Thus, in contrast to an idealism that sees the world in God, Emerson sees God in man and the world. Unlike Christianity, which declares Christ infinite because it thinks him as divine, Emerson will, in a statement that both opposes and redefines Christian doctrine, declare that he has a faith like Christ's in the infinitude of man and not God. That's Emerson's Divinity School address. Third, because the true reality is this world, whatever is individuated by the painful accumulation atom by atom of persons and creatures will be rendered indispensable and essential in and finally, in opposition to idealism's disregard for the buzz of political events or specificities of country and religion on the premise that their, that their unstable messiness prevents us from seeing the eternal vast picture of history that God intends, Emerson declares that his thinking will be saturated by them. And I quote, men and women and their social life, poverty, labor, Religious and political revolutions and the abolition of slave trade are the questions that must and will obsess it. And finally, since what is generated by these atoms into discrete forms is rendered thus essential, the soul of which he speaks, far from removing itself from the material to question the existence of what is external to the mind, will affirm its reality. I do not wish to fling stones at my beautiful mother nature, nor soil my gentle nest. Children believe in the external world. The belief that it appears only is an afterthought. But with culture, this fate will as surely arise on the mind as did the first." End quote. Now, it is especially this last intention of Emerson's philosophy to come um, um, uh, uh, that will be further um, articulated in, uh, in, in the essay Nature from the second series of essays in 1844. Starting from the afterthought that rejects matter's non-existence, the essay will move to the forethought that we are thoroughly material, including our spirit, going so far as to claim that it is somehow exuded, the spirit, by rocks and stones. And this is Emerson, we never can part with matter. The mind loves its home. 
As water to our thirst, so is the rock, the ground to our eyes and hands and feet, end quote. The essay will dissociate itself from idealism, not just explicitly, but also polemically, and announce that its main stake is to understand what it means to say that the home of the mind is matter, to, this is quote, to come to our own and make friends with matter, which the ambitious chatter of the schools would persuade us to despise, end quote. However, even if, the, even if it dismisses idealism as mere chatter, the essay doesn't instead propose the brand of materialism that privileges the mechanism and inertia of matter. Instead, it will opt for a non-dualistic ontology that understands the spiritual as concretized as and embodied in a vital matter. Such an ontology can perhaps, it's my proposition, best be identified as materialist vitalist. The essay's argument regarding the nature of matter proceeds phenomenologically, telling us what matter is on the basis of how we perceive it. We perceive it as a series of discrete formed phenomena that Emerson, borrowing the concept from Spinoza, terms created nature, natura naturata. It comprises, he says, natural objects such as snowflakes, rocks, water, land, or material landscape that are distinguished on the basis of the temporary stability of their forms and their spatial distance. Yet the numerical diversity of natural objects doesn't entail for Emerson their discontinuous being. For even if we perceive them as separately figured, they are imminently uh, connected by an identity that Emerson understands as one of the essential traits of the natural world. However, the identity he has in mind doesn't cancel the difference among beings into sameness, for it is imagined as a force that binds what is individuated into an uninterrupted flow of change. Such a force runs through all the differences of the natural, connecting them as continuity, or as Emerson says, this guiding identity runs through all the surprises and contrasts and characterizes every law. Thus, on the one hand, phenomena are discrete and even heterogeneous, while on the other, regardless of how heterogeneous they might be, snowflake from a dog, landscape from a flower, their differences constitute a bounded continuance. Moon, and I quote Emerson, moon, plant, gas, crystal are all regions of nature bounded, linked by relations that make of them a continuous stream of matter. Again, in Emerson's terms, things are so strictly related that according to the skill of the eye from any one object, the parts and properties of any other may be predicted. That identity makes us all one and reduces to nothing great intervals of our customary scale, end quote. However, if it is often difficult to perceive phenomena in the moment of transition, when parts and properties of one are resembling, uh, reassembling into properties of another, it is because such transitioning is sometimes slowed down. What we perceive as separately figured bodies is what Emerson, Emerson calls nature's organized rest by which he refers to longer or shorter periods of time when the mobility and transformation of beings and phenomena decelerates. 
But if Emerson never thinks of this repose as a complete cancellation of motility, it is because for him matter is never inert, but is to the contrary imminently animated. If it were inert, something other than it, hence something immaterial, like a spiritual prime mover or God, would be required to animate and make it. But to claim that matter is enlivened by something other than itself would be to render everything that is living utterly dependent on a force that can at any moment abandon it. It would mean exposing the whole natural world to the continuous threat of catastrophe, which could at any point in time completely eradicate it, delivering it to death so that, as Emerson puts it, the air would rot. For those reasons, opposing the belief of idealist theory that God creates the world in an instant, Emerson will argue that far from being created by something that is not it, nature must be inherently self-generative. The aspect of matter that references in its inherent livelihood is called by Emerson, again, borrowing Spinoza's concept, creative nature, natura naturans, which he understands to mean efficient nature, or interchangeably, the quick cause of things, what enlivens everything while creating it. An inherently animated matter doesn't mean simply that matter is its own first cause of organization, but also that the initial impulse, impulse to create never fades away. Matter's efficiency is continuously generative. Matter keeps on recreating itself. Thus, it is not only that, as he puts it, nature bestowed the impulse of mere push to enact animation. It is also that that famous aboriginal push propagates itself through all the balls of the system and through every atom of every ball. The idea that animation traverses every atom of every ball suggests that for Emerson, animated nature is, in contrast to Lucretius atomism, not exhausted by organized and biological matter, but includes all matter. For Emerson, everything embodied, including stones and rocks, dust and air, is spinning within itself um, with life. As he will explicitly stay in the method of nature, the physiologist concedes that no chemistry, no mechanics can account for the fact, but a mysterious principle of life must be assumed, which not only inhabits the organ, but makes the organ. If in that particular instance, Emerson offers an organic example, nature makes, nature, yes, say, makes clear that this vitalist matter is in fact imagined as creative of everything embodied, from the inorganic to the organic, from what is simple to what is complex. And I quote, the addition of matter from year to year arrives at last at the most complex forms, and yet so poor is nature with all her craft that from the beginning to the end of the universe, she has but one stuff, but one stuff with its two ends to serve up all her dream-like variety, compounded how she will, star, sand, fire, water, tree, man, it is still one stuff and betrays the same properties." End quote. <clears throat> so elements and flowers, trees and man, are all of the same stuff, only differently assembled. 
This is, of course, not to claim that there is no difference among them, but rather that those differences are numerical rather than substantial. As Emerson will explicitly put it in The Natural Method of Mental Philosophy, all difference is quantitative, quality is one. The diversity of form and organization is thus understood as quantitative variation of the same substantial quality that imminently relates simpler phenomena perceived <clears throat> as inorganic. So that he would say, and as man and man are superficially unlike but radically identical, leaves of one tree and man and animals are modification of one, so in a larger generalization, the animal creation and the globe on which they live, um, man and his planet, these have all common relations. They are of the same identity. To say that man is made of the same stuff as stars and trees, a sort of compound of the globe, is to point to one of the most radical and scarcely thinkable consequences of Emerson's uh, materialist vitalism, for it advises that everything that constitutes man, including his thoughts, affects, and sensations, must consist of matter. In nature, Emerson will insist on that point, arguing that regardless how refined phenomena are, whether more crude, such as bodies, or more sophisticated, such as thoughts, nature still goes back for materials and begins again with the first elements on the most advanced stage. Otherwise, all goes to ruin, Emerson says. Thus, not only are two numerically different bodies of the same substance, but a thought and a body are merely variant modalities of the same substance, different, differing as two ends of one stuff. Emerson is serious about this point, advancing it on several occasions. As already mentioned, at the beginning of nature, he suggests that if we never can part with matter, it is because the man loves its home, the, the mind loves its home. Similarly, in the natural me method of mental philosophy, human intellect will be identified as a, as a fine vegetation. And most explicitly, in experience, spirit will be called matter, reduced to an extreme thinness. Thus, dreamlike variety of nature is literally understood to be compounded of one vital stuff. There is something of matter even in dreams, and bits of dreams <clears throat> even in trees. Now, nature can be continuous, all changes pass without shock or leaps, as Emerson, because the vitality that swarms into phenomena renders them mo motile and thus unstable, and exerts pressure on them to exceed their boundaries and tip over into what is adjacent to them. Emerson's sense of continuity is that because life is communal, we, we are all one identical stuff, all forms must be porous. There is, this is Emerson, there is something social and intrusive in the nature of all things. They seek to penetrate each the nature of every other creature and itself along in all modes and throughout space to prevail. Every star in heaven is discontented and insatiable. All things are mixed." End quote. So Emerson calls the porousness of things variously but synonymously enthusiasm, excess, exaggeration, 
and ecstasy of nature itself. Ecstasy is here understood neither as a category from the vocabulary of mysticism that would name human communication with the divine, nor as a mental state of excitement leading to self-abandonment. It is instead meant literally as ecstasis of forms, that is, as an ontological uneasiness and restlessness that takes everything out of itself. Nothing is settled in its form, even stars being discontented, but everything is a rushing stream of life, a rhythmical flow in which the figure continuously overflows into something else, a process of, as he puts it, rapid metamorphosis, through which everything is, as he also puts it, always becoming somewhat else. Life is thus intense abundance, a slight, Emerson, called, Emerson says, a slight generosity, a drop too much, a small excess, pressing everything to step outside its form. And I quote Emerson, exaggeration is in the course of things. Nature sends no creature, no man into the world without adding a, an excess of his proper quality. A little violence of direction, through which what is will transcend, through which what, what is will transcend itself. This ecstatic self-transcendence that gives phenomena over to becoming is systematically identified by Emerson as the method or law of nature. Ecstasy, the genius of the method of nature, or the power of nature is ecstatic, or ecstasy is the law of nature, or nature can only be conceived as a work of ecstasy. So when Emerson talks about the force of transcendentalism, forms transcending themselves, he means first and foremost that everything literally or materially oversteps itself. Hence the famous gloss from Circles, the way of life is by abandonment. Now in exiting itself to become something else, everything's always beginning. Hence all is nascent and infant. But that all seems just begun doesn't mean that everything's moving in the same predetermined direction towards a certain goal. Emerson discards the idea of the teleological unfolding of life because it cancels the possibility of ecstatic life. If everything were purposive, moving in a predetermined direction, then no excess or ecstasy would be possible and every instance of impulsive transcendence would be merely apparent but in essence programmed. In opposition to teleological understanding of nature, thus, Emerson claims the absence of any finality. We can point nowhere to anything final, says he. If being is not final, then man is not the telos of, nature, of natural life. Man might be a more complex being than other animals or plants, but because every single form of life is only the beginning of something else, man too is in the process of metamorphosis. And I quote, that no single end may be selected in nature and nature judged thereby appears from this, that if man himself be considered as the end and it be assumed that the final cause of the world is to make holy or wise or beautiful man, we see that it has not succeeded. End quote. However, the idea of constant and diverse change doesn't mean only that life has no final end, but also that everything in it moves in multiple directions. 
To explain the multidirectionality of life, Emerson uses the example of the human body. Just as life is simultaneous throughout the whole body, the equal serving of innumerable ends without the least emphasis or preference to any, so nature can only be conceived as existing not to a particular end, but to a universe of ends, he said. Such a non-purposive excessiveness of life leads Emerson to conclude that life proceeds in a spontaneous and um, a spontaneous, um, in spontaneous way. Uh, to risk a paradox, the only necessity operative in nature would then be contingency. It's only fate chance. As he puts it, the results of life are uncalculated and uncalculable. That is why, in contrast to a variety of biological determinisms, Emerson advances the proposition that there is no physical necessity in any form of life. An embryo does not enfold its future. And I quote Emerson, I see not if one be once caught in this trap of so-called sciences, any escape for the man from the links of the chain of physical necessity. Given such an embryo, such a history must follow. On this platform, one would, soon commit to, one would soon come to suicide. But it is impossible that the creative power should exclude itself. Into every intelligence, there is a door which is never closed, into which this vital force enters. Now, crude materialism which is precisely a sheer biological determinism that presumes matter to be mechanistic and purposefully directed towards certain ends in such a way that the law of every being is knowable in advance, is for Emerson less a scientific than an ideological proposition. In the 1840s, when Emerson formulates his understanding of material life, the platform of determinist materialism summed up in the claim, which he references that the history of a being is inscribed in its embryo, is mobilized in support of the racist politics of pseudosciences, such as mesmerism or phrenology. And I quote Emerson, I know the mental proclivity of physicians. I hear the chuckle of the phrenologists, theoretical kidnappers and slave drivers. They esteem each man the victim of another who winds him round his finger by knowing the laws of his being and by such cheap signboards as the color of his beard or the slope of his occiput, reads the inventory of his fortunes and character. I saw a gracious gentleman who adapts his conversation to the form of the head of the man he talks with. I had fancied that the value of life lay in its inscrutable possibilities, in the fact that I never know in addressing myself to a new individual what may befall me. But it is impossible that the creative power should exclude itself." End quote. The theories that build on physical necessity, such as mesmerism and phrenology, are here identified as theoretical kidnappers because they, in fact, did enable real kidnapping. We know that in the decades that preceded Emerson's claim, mesmerism and phrenology triggered the occurrence of unspeakable things. For instance, mesmerists arriving in Haiti from France spread a hypnotic frenzy that led slave owners to believe 
that they had access to a technique through which the law of everybody's being would be knowable in a way that would enable them to be manipulated like zombies. The Swiss naturalist Charles Bonnet thus received the following report from Saint Domingo. The great debates surrounding mesmerism hardly seem to be settled definitively. Two mesmeric tubs in this colony were directed by Monsieur Ponce, officer of the Royal Navy. Marvelous cures that could hardly be attributed to any play of the imagination have been reported. A cripple brought from the plane to Caprances, on a litter walked freely afterward. A female slave, paralyzed for 14 years, was entirely cured in a short time without, without her realizing that she was being treated and can now work. A plantation owner on this plane made a big profit in magnetizing a consignment of cast-off slaves he bought at a low price. Restoring them to good health by means of the tub, he was able to lease them at prices paid for the best slaves. The rage for magnetism has taken hold of everyone here. Mesmeric tubs are everywhere." End quote. Thus, when Emerson says in Demonology that mesmerism is a high life below stairs, and that animal magnetism's inquiry, this is Emerson, animal magnetism's inquiry is pursued on low principle, that it peeps and becomes in the hands of a class of persons a black art. He has in mind precisely this low hope of mesmerists that they could determine the action of others by knowing in advance the secrets of their being. Mesmerism is un unacceptable because it violates the integrity of persons in the same way that it violates the integrity of nature as a whole, for it subdues the freedom of persons to the uses of the thing, the commodity, the power, by selfishly studying nature as a trade." End quote. And similarly, phrenology. When Emerson says that anatomy and physiology is in selfish hands become phrenology, he almost certainly has in mind Samuel George Morton's a Philadelphia anatomist and physician who notoriously collects skulls to determine on a basis of their size and shape the psychological traits of races and persons. The results of his research are published in his infa infamous 1839 Crania Americana with an afterword by a phrenologist, George Combe. Combe claims that Morton's findings regarding the shapes and sizes of skulls from a variety of Native American tribes both corroborates and enables phrenological theories of physiological determinism. Morton proposes, on Combe's account, that the national character of different tribes must be predetermined by features of the brain that are revealed by the skull. His phrenological method combines, as he puts it, inside on the shape and size of skulls, relevant because the size of the brain is indicated by the dimension of the skull, end quote, with knowledge of the development and fun functions of various brain areas as a way of resisting historicism and claiming that easily discoverable characteristics of the racial or, or national brain determine not just the historical, political, or cultural environment, but also the idiosyncrasies 
of individual behaviors and even specificities of personal ethics and desires. And I quote Combe, the phrenologist has absorbed that a particular size and form of brain is the invariable concomitant of particular dispositions and talents, and then this fact holds good in the case of nations as well as of individuals. A knowledge of the size of the brain and the proportions of its different parts in the different varieties of the human race will be the key to a correct appreciation of the difference in their natural mental endowments on which external circumstances act only as a slightly modifying influences." End quote. Thus Emerson's dismissal of phrenology as the selfishness of a physiologist who looks at life as a trade is precisely based on the consequences that follow from Combs' investigations, which fantasize how the skull determines an individual disposition and so contributes to taxonomies that imprison classes of humans in non-negotiable hierarchies. Emerson's vitalist materialism must therefore be seen not only as an ontology that radically revises Western metaphysical dualism, but also in the context in which it works in direct opposition to determinist biopolitics. To the racism of phrenologists, Emerson opposes a movement of life that is unpredictable, unconditioned by anything other than its own creativity. Above all, that life is common to all. So that, as Emerson says, man and man are superficially unlike, but in fact, radically identical. Thank you.